Yes, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I am really excited about today, today's episode. Well, partly because I took a little summer hiatus, so I felt like returning to podcasts. And I want to do another uh, episode in my series, Stuff That Helps. And I want to do the work of Bill Plotkin. Actually, just one one dimension of Bill Plotkin's work rooted in a book called Wild Mind, a field guide to the human psyche. So Bill Plotkin has been one of my teachers for the last six years or so. I've done, not only have I read everything he's written, but I've done a number of programs at Animus Valley Institute, which I've mentioned before, probably on this podcast, or I mentioned it when I was on Pete Holmes's podcast. And I find sort of their nature-oriented, nature-based, psycho-spiritual work, it really rings my bell, first of all. And it's absolutely incredible to go out to wild and semi-wild places and turn up the heat on your own existential questions and longings. And at the same time, uh, deepen into your own capacities for wholeness and for healing and for self-healing, mostly just by being in a kind of living dialogue with nature itself, where nature becomes uh, a voice in nature. Nature returns to its rightful place as a voice of healing and wholeness and challenge and change. It's like nature is a mirror itself. And a lot of Animus's work is just putting putting people in back into the natural world and then facilitating a deeper conversation between the ego and the soul and nature and hovering around questions of 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 uh, vocation. But I mean something deeper than whether or not you're a lawyer or a pastor or something like that. Vocation in terms of voice, vox, the voice beneath the voice, I like to say, or calling in the old-fashioned sense of the word, meaning the soul might have a cer- certain aims of her own on your life. And to come into deeper conversation with that is to have the deepest conversation you can have with life. So this is a lot of Animus's work. And today I want to try to have a conversation about wild mind, this field guide to the human psyche. And I'll explain more about what I mean by that in a few minutes. Before I jump into all that, a couple things that are going on for me that you might be interested in. I have an Israel trip in January, January 2 through 10, which is a great time of year to visit because it's not very hot and there aren't very many tourists. So I've been leading January trips for a while. So if that interests you, I've got a few spots. I've got a group coming from West Michigan and one from uh, Newark, uh, New Jersey, flying out of there. But you can fly, you can make arrangements to come from anywhere, and people often do on my trips. And I'm still drawn to these. This is, I think, my 16th year leading pilgrimages to Israel, and that's finally, actually, actually through a lot of struggle, have landed on pilgrimage as a way First of all, it feels like a more authentic way for me to to lead these trips, guide these trips. Um, but it also fits into one of the seven ancient disciplines, Christian spiritual disciplines, which is adventure or pilgrimage, setting off for the unknown and opening opening up to 
a deeper conversation about God, faith, doubt, longing, hopes, desires, that sort of stuff. That's what a pilgrimage is. And there you have a destination in mind, but the journey itself, the places you visit, the conversation that unfolds works on you. And, and I say works on you because that's a lot different than most Israel trips out there. And most of them are set up to confirm what you already think you know before you even get on the plane. Meaning if you are sort of pro-Israel and relatively conservative, there's a trip for you. And if you're, um, if you're pro-Palestinian and have a negative uh, view of Israel, there's a trip for you. And of course, politics is part of my trip too. You can't help it. Uh, I, I feel like my trips give you sort of a 101 introduction to what the heck is this place? Why does it matter? Who are the Palestinians? Who are the Israelis? That's not even easy to answer. So it's more of a 101 introduction. But I'm also interested in everything else, culture, history, language, Bible, story. And not just to cram information down your throat. I used to do that for a number of years. It was like a graduate seminar. How much information can I pack in? But rather to deepen the conversation uh, around your own spirituality, your own spiritual life. And not just so that you can have a personal spiritual experience, although many people do. Israel is a, is a, um, can open one up to such a thing. It doesn't manufacture them, of course. It can also lead to a lot of disappointment, sometimes a mixture of both. But so that you can um, hear again the perhaps the mystery of God and the divine be in conversation with the history of faith or faiths. So much of modern life were cut off, totally cut off from any sense of history. And that makes it very difficult to see where we're going. I mean, part of being a human being is to be in conversation with the past. Um, so that I think is a component, but also if, if I'm really honest, I hope that something of my own life and the people who come on this gets worked on and challenged and changed so that we can be more generative, generous, life-giving people in the world. The world is in such need. And from a climate perspective and a political perspective, from a, a spiritual perspective, or it feels like one of my friends, um, he's a uh, priest in in Israel says Western society is moving spiritually backwards, and I guess I agree. And a trip like this is meant to provoke and challenge and change and wake up, hopefully, um, our own uh, spiritual life. So anyway, that's that's a pilgrimage, and that's what I'm doing January two through ten. You are more than welcome to join. The details are on my website. Look for future trips. I took about a year off. I needed a year off, just like I took the summer off of podcasts. That's part of how my own creative life, I'm learning to be in conversation with my own creative life. I can't just, um, you know, it doesn't work. I can't just like uh, be a machine and crank stuff out. I'm just not, it's not a healthy way for me to live. So anyway, I took about a year off of Israel trips. I'm really glad to be back into it. That might interest you. One other thing, um, I offer a kind of year-long program, and it's for people who are in West Michigan, but a lot of people contact me and say, hey, I live elsewhere. 
have you thought about doing a program that's not local? So I'm going to try uh, a shorter version, a sort of six-month dive into uh, Soul Descent, a conversation about human wholeness and Soul Descent. These are two parallel tracks. And some of it is popularizing the work I want to get in today, um, or, or popularizing is the wrong word, but going deeper into the work I want to talk about today in terms of wholeness, stuff I've learned at Animus and continue to learn. I'm in their guide training program. Um, but mostly it's just a chance for a small group to get together to talk and share and read myths and look at maps and stories and do dream work in a small setting to talk like people don't talk in ordinary their ordinary waking life and to enter into a kind of community for a short amount of time hopefully to to deepen the conversation you're having about your own soul like what am I here to do or to be or to bring forth in the world so I'm trying an online version and check on my website for details I'm gonna start at the end of October and there's an application process and I'm just going through them right now as we speak it'll probably be done over zoom and you can join that way and if you live in a part of the world where you won't be awake when they're happening I'll probably record them so I'm trying to figure out all the details with that but if that interests you send me an email and we can chat that way through my website kendobson.com okay to the task at hand stuff that helps. So I can say kind of unequivocally that the work of Bill Plotkin has helped me personally think differently about what does it mean to grow up and what what does it mean? What does human wholeness mean? I've said for a while like in my book that original sin I haven't found particularly helpful. But something like original blessing, original wholeness, and I believe that. And just like the oak tree isn't born with some sort of original curse, it's born with a capacity for the acorn, has the capacity for the oak tree itself. Well, I think about human beings the same way. We come into the world with innate facets or dimensions of human wholeness that everybody has regardless of race gender zip code ethnicity education socioeconomic status it's part of um, our own human evolutionary inheritance but I'm also not naive just because we are born with a certain kind of wholeness and a capacity for wholeness doesn't mean we we often operate that way you you and I get hijacked by what psychologists call subpersonalities or complexes. And though we might have a capacity to be a nurturing, generative, generous parent, sometimes we um, act like a punitive, uh, shame-oriented, threatening parents, if you're a parent. And I could say a whole bunch more. Uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. So... Plotkin really is, in this book, is trying to give a map or a model 
and a way of thinking about and working with our facets of wholeness rooted in really something that's been developing in the world of psychology and depth psychology since the 1990s. So it's really not that old. Maybe you've heard uh, James Hillman. He's a Jungian. James Hillman has this great line. He says, a hundred years of psychotherapy and we're sicker than ever. You know, how is that possible? Counseling, therapy, all the many gifts that even your grandparents and parents probably didn't have access to. Well, how is it that we're sicker than ever as a culture? And there's not one answer for that, of course. But one of the things that psychology and the world of psychology, depth psychology in particular, has realized is that we've largely been an illness-focused um, it's been an illness-focused discipline, even starting with Freud and Jung. Jung worked with schizophrenics. And they went after the illness as if, if they could fix, solve, work with um, the illness itself, then human wholeness would simply be the absence of this particular illness or these three or four complexes. Therefore, the human being would be whole. That hasn't worked because human beings are far more complicated. And looking at illness, problem, complexes, you know, you, you might have found yourself in therapy again, returning to the question of how your mom treated you or that one time that your dad did this. Those are important, but sometimes that comes at the neglect of, well, what does it look like to pursue a psychologically whole life, to grow up into adulthood and into a more... Um, uh, a fuller way of working with these innate facets of wholeness to be a whole human being instead of so illness focused. And I think actually Jesus hints around at something like this when he says, if you drive out by force one demon, seven will return. And I think that that's that hyper-focused mechanism. If I could just fix this one hang-up I have and I'm going to throw all my energy, seven more start showing up. When sometimes the opposite approach is needed, and even um, the world of positive psychology, that's what I meant, that was the movement in the 1990s around happiness and fulfillment, is a step in the right direction. All right, what does it mean for me to be happy? How am I treating my body? Am I exercising? Am I... Um, what am I putting in and just in terms of what am I eating? All these things actually matter a great deal, not just my hangups from childhood or my um, irritability at work and my anger toward my boss, but what about all of the facets of just being a human being? So uh, Plotkin's uh, work, Wild Mind, is a wholeness-oriented kind of book. And you'll see in a minute, well, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's oriented around the four directions, the north, south, east, and west, with a simple acknowledgement that most ancient cultures and spiritualities had a relationship with the north, south, east, and west. It was a way they came to understand, it's a, it's a way they came to understand their world, meaning the natural world, the universe, the cosmos, the way things are, and also what the natural world mirrored back to them about their own innate wholeness. In other words, if there's something true about the North or the South or the East and the West and something true about nature and just the way the world is, then it must be also true of human beings because after all, we are nature. We are made up of the same particles. Um, 
it's not like some people are into nature because they, you know, wear Patagonia and have been to REI. No, we are nature. And to be in a deeper relationship with the natural world and the seasons and the cycles actually, from a psycho-spiritual point of view, helps deepen our own experience of being a human being and touches upon um, these facets of wholeness. And you'll see what they are in a few minutes. And this is valuable in and of itself, but I just want to throw in one other dimension of Bill Plotkin's work. Why? Why a conversation about human wholeness? Well, first of all, we live, in his words, in a patho-adolescent culture. We are pathologically adolescent. And there's nothing wrong with adolescence. In adolescence, the primary concerns are peer group, where do I fit in, and society. Um, what are the categories and social roles and even identities? That's an adolescent concern. And sex. Um, sexual orientation, sexual identity, partnership, um, who likes me, who doesn't. Think about a junior high playground or the high school lunchroom. It's an awesome and fiery and erotic and charged environment. And it's absolutely perfect for adolescents. But we have pathologized the concerns of adolescents as a culture. And it's still peer group sex in society. Um, or William Stafford says revenge, fame, money. Or Kendrick Lamar says um, sex, money, murder. These are the times. So um, this kind of fiery um, adolescent um, stage is what we call modern contemporary Western life. And this is why things like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are so addictive because they feed our adolescent personas. Who am I in the world? Peer group. Where do I fit in? What's my voice? What's my role? What's my identity? Who's on my side? Who's not on my side? Who likes me? Who doesn't? How many likes do I have? Um, all the stuff that you already know, but it's still addictive. Even if you think about, you know, you go to yoga and you've read Eckhart Tolle, it's still addictive, this kind of culture. The question is, how do we grow up? One way of wrestling with that is a conversation around human wholeness. What are these innate facets and how can I uh, deepen into them and at the same time deal with some of these uh, complexes and subpersonalities that are running my life and keeping me stuck in this adolescent uh, vortex called American life. Also, what for? Not just so that I can be a whole human being and be a little healthier. That would be great. Just look at the state of American politics and we, you, you, it's like you want to cry. I want to cry, honestly, about just how immature our leaders are on the right and the left. This and the deep-seated anxiety, even, even coming from the president, but probably all people in policies, deep-seated anxiety, who likes me and who doesn't, as if this is one giant junior high playground. So just a little more wholeness would be great. But the other sort of component of Bill Plotkin's work is why do we need wholeness so that we can go on the great adventure of soul descent? Sort of the great uh, mythic path of descent and return down into the underworld, 
where we touch upon true self, soul, essence, and really, I mean, touch upon glimmers. It's not like you find it. It's more like the pot of gold. It's, it remains a bit elusive, but you, you suddenly who you think you are in your, in the world, your egoic framework starts to dissolve and dismantle and you descend in the belly of the whale or three days and three nights in the tomb, or you leave the village like, like Buddha and begin to go on a wander and you sit beneath the, the tree. This kind of descent to the depths of who we think we are in the world, not so that um, we can be like, oh, I found myself and great, but so that we can return and be of some service. All the great stories, spiritual leaders have had something like that, this kind of descent and return. And often it depends on the, on the path. Often there's transcendence mixed up with that. That's a whole nother area. And, and actually a lot of spirituality is interested in the conversation about transcend. How do we transcend our egoic persona and touch upon the universal and the divine and, and oneness? But oftentimes in contemporary language, spirituality, and even stories, we're missing the descent component. And that's the other portion of Plotkin's work. That's in the book Soulcraft and in Nature and the Human Soul, which talks about these different, um, really eight different psycho-spiritual stages um, to life. But look that stuff up on your own if, if this work interests you. But what's my main point? We need a certain amount of wholeness, wild mind, just to go on the journey. Because if you're in a state of existential crisis and you, like me, um, a few years ago when I was like, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. Um, yet I work for the church and every Sunday I get up and have to give a sermon. I'm, I, I mean, um, I was falling apart physically. I was getting sick. I was, uh, I was a wreck, um, which is actually the soul, this way I put it now. I didn't know this at the time. The soul was knocking on the door saying, who are you? <laughs> um, and maybe there's a call on your life that you don't know anything about. Maybe there's a voice beneath your voice that if you don't um, get serious about, you're going to squander. Like, like Jesus says, what if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So that was what was tapping on my door. But just on a basic level of wholeness and growing up, I needed the parallel track of um, health, of what does a, a psychologically healthier life look like. So I've come to think about it as two parallel tracks. The path of the soul and the path of wholeness are both needed. I'll give you a really concrete example. I've got a friend who um, she's very uh, mystical, mystically minded. When she begins to talk, it's like like she's a bard or a poet from another world, as if she's uh, coming up from the underground, speaking in metaphors and symbols and and images, and which lures you, awakens something within you, and lures you, you know, to the deeper, more mythic um, resonances and questions. However, a few years ago, at the same time, she had a drinking problem. She, her, this uh, addictive complex which seems to come out of nowhere and is not consulted by the, you know, you, you're not uh, in a very conscious conversation. It just seems to come up and wreak havoc 
was dominating her life. And in other words, her capacity to live into her soul depths is kind of like a bard and a singer or a siren of the underworld, which she clearly has, anybody can see it, was being hijacked by this addiction. And so what does wholeness have to do with that? Wholeness has to do with, let's look at the addiction. And, and rather than only focusing on the addiction itself, but what is, um, what's the facet of wholeness to which that addiction only points? How is the addiction short-circuiting this innate um, human capacity of wholeness? Which I'll uh, this will make more sense once I go through the the four directions. If I can say it simply, you have to take a look at the hard stuff, the everyday stuff, the addictions, your wounded self, your your stories of victimization. Um, your loyal soldiers, your shadow work, all this stuff needs attention if you're going to go any further on the path of soul descent. Or if you want to think about it as the path of um, transcendence, touching upon the divine, you, your subpersonalities and complexes are going to get in the way of that. So that's part of the reason why a book like, I think, a book like Wild Mind matters. And one of the things I think is that's unique about it is that it takes all of those subpersonalities and complexes, like the ones I just named, the victim, the loyal soldier, the shadow, um, your um, escapist tendencies, and, and says something that's far more generous. These are simply immature versions of something good. Now, when I first heard that, that sort of cut me you know, to the core in a good way. Sort of the, the knife, the, the knife that cuts into the heart that hurts and also, um, feels healing at the same time, because I don't know if it's sort of my fundamentalist Christianity still hanging around. And I think it'll hang around till I'm in the grave. I think your initial introduction into the world um, never fully dissipates. So, but anyway, fundamentalism with its negative view of humanity, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It really came, um, it, it touched a nerve to hear, okay, there are things that are wrong with me, but another way of framing that is that these are simply immature versions of something good. A great example is the addict. The addict longs for transcendence. And really that first joint, that first, you know, three beers in the very first time um, with a psychedelic drug uh, or, or even any form of altered state of consciousness was a little taste of transcendence. It was a small taste of who I thought I was in the world is too small. There's a di whole different way of being, and I'm transcending who I thought I was. It just requires the substance. So the longing, the deeper longing, is for transcendence, and that is a good thing. Like when I think about my friends who are addicts um, and who really struggle with addiction, and, and probably um, try Russell Brand's book on uh, that's out right now called Recovery. Addiction is is... Uh, lurking around every corner and it's not just 
um, sex, heroin, and um, and alcohol, but it's the way we use our our devices and social media and phones and computers and you know what I'm talking about. Um, just modern life is like heroin. It's my wife and I sometimes talk like uh, you know we say to our kids, and you know, here's an iPad. Uh, here's a phone, here's an iPod, and um, just use it with moderation. That's like giving crack to to a crack addict and saying, uh, "Just use this in moderation." Even and we know this from teenagers; their brain isn't even developed enough to to um, to participate in the world with that kind of moderation. It's too addictive, and we know this to be the case. Anyway, that's my main point: is part of that addiction is a longing for transcendence, for rising above your egoic persona just for a taste of something larger. So an immature version, the addiction is an immature version of something good, of something innate, of something beautiful. And um, and Wild Mind is uh, the invitation in the book, I think, is to begin to see these patterns um, and offer some really practical ways of beginning to cultivate these facets of wholeness. So they're situated they're situated around the four directions. I'm going to talk about them individually and somewhat briefly, kind of like a drive-through version. And I think you'll get it I've done this in all kinds of groups. By the way, um sometimes I teach at um a place called C3, West Michigan's Inclusive Spiritual Community. I teach half the Sundays a year, and I just did a little thing on Wild Mind, which is why it's sort of fresh for, uh, for me, but um, I've taught something like this map in all kinds of settings. So I did it at C3. I do it on some of my retreats and programs. Occasionally I'll do it in one-on-one sort of guiding work. Uh, and if, if this goes well, I think, although this is uh, more of a monologue, there's not the back and forth. I think what I found over time and what's, what helps me trust this work is that when I begin to talk about these four directions right away people get it it's not difficult at all it's not complex it's actually very simple and straightforward that nature um, seems to embody something of which we also have deep within us so let's start with the north so when I say the word north what comes to mind and I know I have listeners in New Zealand and Australia, so it would be interesting to know how uh, the Southern Hemisphere might reverse flip some of this stuff around. But let's let's start with the North, as I think about it, uh, in America, in the Northern Hemisphere. What comes to mind? Well, North, cold, um, sort of uh, sparse. I think about a, a field covered in snow. It's a very north kind of image. I think about other things in nature like a mountaintop. Um, I had visited Seattle a bunch of times in the winter, and it wasn't until I went in the summer to, before I, the first time I ever saw Mount Rainier. And it's 14,000 foot m- majestic um, 
sacred rising up out of the earth has a very north-like quality to me it's it's stark and it's um long lasting and it was there before human beings were ever on the continent and it will be there possibly when the human race is gone that's very north to me a tall tree in the forest is a very north like image you can probably think of a bunch more um noble is a word that comes to mind when i think of the north so if we translate that some of the images into a human archetype we come up with something like the nurturing generative adult that's Plotkin's archetype, the nurturing generative adult. There's something about the North that is nurturing, not in the kind of coddling, but that has some longevity to it. Nurturing is what does, like if you're a parent, what does my kid need? Not just what do they think they need, but what do they need in the long run? That's the nurturing parent. That's the nurturing generative adult. And generative is even built into the word is it just a hint toward generations like i think it's the iroquois nation that asks the question um what is the right decision for the next seven generations that's the nurturing generative adult and of course when we think about the world um, and american life and western life in general there's not a lot of nurturing, generative, adult decisions being made in the world. And the invitation, of course, there might be a cultural invitation, but in, as we think about this sort of psycho-spiritually, you right now, all of you, everyone listening to this podcast, regardless of age, race, gender, um, socioeconomic status and education, have the capacity to be a nurturing, generative adult. It's part of the architecture of, of nature itself and of humanity itself. If a mother grizzly bear can make nurturing generative decisions for her offspring, so can you. And there's a lot of power just in this kind of realization and invitation. And am I going to grow up? Am I going to grow up into a nurturing generative presence? Or am I going to remain relatively small and relatively attached to my ego and his concerns and his persona and um, what he thinks he needs in the world to be safe and secure and popular and so forth and so on? The immature version of that is something I've written a bit about in Bitten by a Camel, which is the loyal soldier. The loyal soldier is the should voice. You should do this. You should behave like this. You should conform in this way. Um, and, of, and of course, the, the loyal soldier voice can look differently to different kinds of people. And maybe you can already identify four or five different loyal soldier voices. Fall in line. Do the right thing. Conform to the norms of society. A good boy does this. A good girl does this. And all of those voices actually kept us alive. In fact, in a way, I feel grateful to the loyal soldier voice that says, you better believe exactly like your um, religious fundamentalist parents 
caregivers, teachers, and pastors. Otherwise, it's completely unsafe in your environment. So you better conform so it works. The loyal soldier voice works. It's just not the voice of the nurturing generative adult. Somehow that's an immature version of something deeper. The nurturing generative adult isn't really interested in conformity. It's not really interested in what kind of car does my neighbor drive and how can I look a little better than him or her. It actually has one's great, great, great grandkids in mind. That capacity rests within all of us. So that's the north. That's the both the nature component and um, the archetype. Now, here are a few other sort of archetypal images to help flesh this out with the north. Sometimes elder, teacher, um, parent, the king or the queen. That's a good archetype for the north. These are all, all um, ways or, or these are all images that um, have a sort of north orientation. So let's swing, swing around and do the South. So when I say the word South, what comes to mind? What, what images, what, um, what feelings, uh, by the way, the, the, in the North, I think the sort of center of gravity is the thinking self It's very North. It's going to plan. There's a, even a strategic component to the North archetype that thinks, how am I going to make it through the winter, in other words? But the South is a little more feeling-oriented. And so what comes to mind when, when we think of the South? Well, heat. Um, I have a small garden. I'm not a very good gardener, but I'm concerned about how much um, Southern sunlight it gets. In other words, how much daylight it gets during the summer. And I want my garden facing south. Um, and we, you know, also in my mind, the, the image of a jungle. I mean, if one is more of a stark landscape like, like the tundra, when I say south, I think of the jungle. I think of humidity. I think about, um, I've been in a, in a couple places in Florida in the Everglades where it's just like a tangled mess, but there's so much life. There's so much life. There are vines and palm trees and water and alligators, and that's very south. It's very um, vibrant and alive. And um, if north is more of a winter image, south is summer, free. And 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 I even think about uh, southern Spain for some reason. I've been to beaches on southern in southern Spain where people do not wear clothes. Um, as opposed to like, you know, um, going to the beach in Northern Ireland where people are fully clothed in the summertime, uh, very different cultures, which, which seem to reflect a bit of this North South dimension. And even we think about, um, you know, if you're going to go to a meal in, in Africa or Mexico or, and you say, you know, come come to dinner at six people might not show up until nine you know we we know this because it's a lot more of a southern oriented culture and in the western world particularly in america the south the feeling sense the body sense is very shut down i think about mary oliver's uh poem you do not have to be good that's the loyal soldier you don't have to be good you do not have to walk a hundred miles on your knees repenting 
You just have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. That's the self. The soft animal of your body and your feeling sense. Um, that's the self. And that's uh, a facet of wholeness. What a gift. Why would you want to go through life shutting all that stuff down? Well, the loyal soldier says, because it's dangerous. And and sometimes the loyal soldier has a point. So the immature manifestation of the South, the Southern arch archetype, is um, the wounded child. The wounded child that feels what the wounded child feels, or even the victim, is another way of thinking about um, the immature manifestation of the South. Um, these are the, these come right up to the point of wholeness, but they tend to hijack us. The wounded child once again feels feels things deeply and is deeply wounded by something somebody said or did or didn't do. And I don't know if you're like me, I have a strong wounded child. I can be hijacked by the smallest of things. But instead of shaming that, let's ask the question, what is that an immature expression of? So the archetype that Bill Plotkin uses that embodies the South is the wild indigenous one. The wild indigenous one. There is within every single person, there is within you, if you're listening to this podcast, a wild man or a wild woman that is actually totally at home in the wildest landscapes, that is totally at home uh, laying down in a field, looking up at the stars in the desert is completely at home there, is indigenous in that sense, meaning of the earth, um, rooted and grounded in a body way in the earth itself, and actually loves to feel feelings. And I don't mean just the good feelings. The South loves all feelings, like a grief and anger and rage, and there's a place for all these, um, and eros and, and fire and lust and love and um, tears and joy and happiness, all of these are, uh, all of these emotions are part of what it means to be a human being. And you probably have people in your life that are more Southern oriented. If you're like me, you're jealous. You're like, man, I wish I could feel the way this person feels about, about the world. Um, and a question, of course, becomes, how do I cultivate this facet of wholeness? How do I deepen into this way of coming to know the world instead of just all thinking up in my head, what about in my body and what about in my emotional self? And what about the soft animal of my body uh, coming into contact again with the earth and with landscapes and with a pond and... Um, when I was out in when I was out in Seattle, I led a retreat out there recently, and um, I got down into this this glacial stream, and it's just like to be that chilled to the bone and also that alive. That's a very southern thing to do. Um, to return again to what does it mean to be a human being on the level of the body? So to pursue a more whole life is to simply say, I have a body and I have emotions and I have a wild indigenous one. And how can she, he or she return again? So, um, other archetypes, wild indigenous one from nature or, or uh, excuse me, from mythology are like pan, pan, this, this sort of, um, uh, God of the forest, Artemis, 
who is a uh, huntress and also a protector of small animals. <laughs> very, uh, very Southern uh, sort of archetype, the green man or the green woman uh, from myths and stories. Um, I think about the wild man or in Iron John where they bucket out the the lake only to find a, a hairy wild beast at the bottom of the lake. Yep, that's that's a bit of the South. And that's in you. Um, even though it's so shut down by our education system and all of our sophistication, even by the church or by your synagogue or your mosque or whatever. Okay, so let's, uh, that's a north-south dynamic. Let's move to the east-west dynamic. Again, I'm sorry, this is, this is a drive-through version, but hopefully you're already hearing a bit of um, what, uh, what this book is like and how it might be helpful. So, um, so what comes to mind when I say east? First thing that comes to my mind is the sunrise. And a place of, and the sunrise in some ways represents possibility or new life or return. I think to me the east, the east is like the spring. So if the north is like the winter and the south is like the summer, east is like the spring, new life, return, resurrection, um, there's a reason why Easter and Passover are in the spring. They're, they're about the life-death-life life cycle and the possibility again of a new day dawning. That's the East. And also, I personally, I think about East and wisdom and mysticism and the Far East and the mystery and transcendence comes to mind when I think of, of the East. And... Nature images, for some reason, this may not ring true for you, but I think about like an eagle or a bird of prey and, and the, or even an owl, which has a kind of vision and can see a long ways and can see what the landscape is like and see where the prey is from great distances and, you know, riding these th uh, thermal currents up above the earth. That's a very east kind of image to me. So the archetype associated with the East in, in Wild Mind is the um, innocent sage, the innocent sage. And that combination, I think, is important. Sage makes a lot of sense right away. Um, I think about the Dalai Lama, just he's an Eastern person and he's a Tibetan Buddhist and he lives high up in the Himalayas. And and when he speaks, it's sort of in riddles and... and um, poetry and wisdom uh, and maybe you can think of other east like voices the sage and right away I think um, depending on your disposition you might want to distance yourself from this and say well that's not me but that's not how this book that's not the basic argument of this book the basic argument is is that actually within you you too have the capacity to be the innocent sage to grow into the kind of um, wise teacher that is a facet of human wholeness. Every parent, every adult can grow into this. They can be the storytellers for the next generation. Um, they can touch upon transcendence, like the eagle riding the thermal currents, having contact with the divine and with the big picture that's very East. Now, the innocent side of that, so innocent sage, is the trickster component, the, the bit of um, humor that gets mixed in with 
um, with a truly sage-like person, like how the Dalai Lama is always laughing. Um, I just, for some reason, it popped into my head where the disciples in the Gospels are in a big storm and they're about to be swamped and maybe even die in the lake. And it says that Jesus was about to pass them by walking on the water, which is funny. It's like, to me, that's a bit of that innocent sage, like not coming to the rescue, but just sort of like cleverly walking by. And they freak out, of course. Um, that's a, that little trickster component, I think, that's needed. And now, um, one reason why I'm saying that is because uh, if you are serious about spirituality, transcendence, God, maybe you have an East-like quality to you already. You're drawn to the mystics and the sages, and and you you know you think about yourself perhaps as being kind of a serious uh, person, and spirituality ought to be taken seriously. The balanced side of that in the East is a little bit of humor. Like, don't take yourself too seriously. Remember that you're a human being. That um, that you you're likely to trip and fall regularly so that kind of innocence i think is needed and that's perhaps why jesus says unless you change and become like a child you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven that's that paradox of entering the kingdom this uh this mythological place of connection with god and the earth um the, the this sort of universal kingdom requires a kind of innocence of a child. Um, oh, who's that? Who's that Vietnamese? Uh, I just remember Thich Nhat Hanh. He says he actually um, suggests a practice of going on a contemplative walk, holding the hand of a child. That is a East practice if I've ever heard of one. Now, so what is the immature expression of that? What is the immature expression of that? That's the escapist and the addict who longs for transcendence but actually is an escapist and is afraid of their own innocent sage-like quality. So they short-circuit that. The moment they're sort of asked to step into the fullness of their own innocent sage, they hit the escape button and want out. Don't ask this of me. I'm out of here. It's the early exit. At, it's the Irish early exit, as it's called. I have a really strong escapist. I remember one time I was going on a Bill Plotkin program, and this was high 9,000 feet in the New Mexico desert. Well, high desert. It was more like alpine aspens. It was lush, almost like Colorado, because it was so high. But anyway, really remote location. I had to rent a Jeep, and I got there, and there was a very small parking lot, and I parked my vehicle in such a way that no one could block me in, just in case. And I was doing this all unconsciously. It didn't occur to me later, but until later, but um, this is the escape button. What if too much is asked of me, and I'm going to be overwhelmed? I need that escape button, and I'm out of here. Um, this is me at a party. I don't want to say goodbyes. I just have the escape button. So that's an immature expression of something good, which is the innocent sage who has a long view of things um, who and longs for uh, transcendence. So again, what does it look like to acknowledge and cultivate this facet of wholeness? What would it look like to say, actually, I don't want the... Eckhart Tolle or Jesus or 
um, Mother Teresa to um, hold the post of the sage, the innocent sage, so I don't have to, what does it look like for me to enter? And to acknowledge this innate capacity, not for my, just for my own good, but for the sake of the world. That's a very East, a way of facing East, so to speak. So let's uh, flip around to the West. What comes to mind when I say West? What comes to mind when I say West? Maybe if you're an American, it's like the West um, and kind of adventure and pioneering. And probably what's um, just beneath that is the adventure into the unknown. That's very West. I'm going to move to a territory that I don't know very much about. I'm going to go on the deeper adventure the more scary adventure. And of course, West is the place where the sun goes down. So if East has a long view, West has the day is ending. It's, it's something is closing down. It's the fall. It's when the days get shorter. And what's interesting about the West in my mind is that if one is about new life, East, what's West about? West is about death. And actually, there is a facet of our own wholeness that appreciates and loves death, the death of all things. I mean, and here we are in the fall where the entire, especially here, here in the Midwest, everything is screaming out death, 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 returning to the earth. And the leaves are um, falling from the trees and going back into the soil and and and. And there's something mysterious and alluring and a bit frightening. And, um, and have you noticed, I mean, maybe this is true for me, but I think it's kind of a universal, people suddenly get more poetic in the fall. And there's something almost nostalgic about it. That's that West um, facet that's beginning to wake up, that's in love with mystery and death and the underworld and East is very upper world, West is very underworld, and the guide to the soul. Um, so Bill Blocken calls this facet of wholeness, which is, in my mind, one of the hardest to, to sort of grasp initially, because it's a bit, el a bit elusive. He calls this facet of wholeness the muse beloved. So let's start with the muse. Muse is the Greek goddess that visits you and um, with song, poetry, dance, and creativity. It almost comes to you on the edges. And sometimes you don't have access to it. Maybe maybe sometime in your life, I don't care if you're, you've been in business or if it's just um, redecorating a room or, um, or a poem or a song, if you ask, where did that come from, especially when you feel taken over by something, by almost a kind of creative and mysterious energy, that's the muse, and that's West. And, um, and all human beings have this capacity. Even though in our so-called Western world, we tend to divide up the world between those who are creative and those who are not, those who have that kind of gift and those who are just practical. And I understand in terms of uh, general disposition, people can, maybe already you can go around the four directions and say, oh, I can see my strengths here and my weaknesses here. I think it does work like that. Um, people can have natural dispositions, but everybody, everybody, everybody has this West component. 
this this facet of wholeness that is in love with mystery and that can be visited by the muse and can enter into life more creatively um, than their kind of ordinary egoic persona. And what would it look like to cultivate this facet, to pay attention to the creative nudges that are just beneath the surface of our life? So that's a muse. The beloved is probably rooted in Jungian depth psychology, at least initially, with the animus or the anima. This is the inner masculine and the inner feminine. And um, typically, although um, this is one of the great gifts of of all the conversation around gender that's happening and a lot of the confusion around um, conversations with gender, but typically those who identify as male have a kind of inner feminine that lures, that, that is alluring. Often we end up projecting that onto other people, of course. Um, but what's happening on the deeper level, um, on the level of the soul is that you, there's a kind of love affair that's happening between your masculine identity and the inner feminine. And same goes the other way around. If you identify largely as, uh, as a female, it's the inner masculine. And often these come out in dreams, by the way, um, as at least initial images of a kind of courtship with the inner beloved. And, and what ends up happening is that instead of spending the rest of your life projecting all of um, your dreams, desires, what James Hollis calls the magical other, onto other people, I need my partner to be this, 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 and this. I know that's what I need the invitation in the West is you begin to discover actually what you were putting on the, this man or this woman in your life is actually some of your own innate and deeper qualities that have to be owned, that have to be reincorporated, that have to be eaten and consumed. And, um, and, and, and in a sense you become, uh, practically much less needy in the world. You're finding a kind of inner resources that, that were there all along in the anima and the animus or the inner beloved. So that's definitely territory that is almost completely shut down in Western culture. Right now, it, you may be like, what the hell are you even talking about? Yep, that's even though this is as old as there are stories in the world, this inner masculine and inner feminine, we're just not very familiar with it. We, we've shut it down. So cultivating the West facet of wholeness is one of the more difficult um, invitations. Now, the question becomes, what is the immature expression of that? And very simply, it's the shadow. What Carl Jung called the shadow. It's what you don't know about yourself. It, more than that, it's what you don't know about yourself. And if accused, you would flatly deny you would say things like, there is no way I am like fill in the blank. Now, the shadow can be, I don't want to do a whole thing on the shadow right now, but the shadow can be positive or negative would be one way of looking at it. Or I prefer golden or sinister. So a sinister shadow would be there's no way I don't have an angry bone in my body. In fact, um, Donald Trump is the problem. He's the one that's angry. And I'm so glad I don't have any of that going on. Well, probably that's an indication that there's a lot of repressed anger and it's gone into the shadows 
and it's limiting your West-like capacity. And some of that is to, to touch upon that. And not in destructive ways, but to touch upon the anger. Actually, no, I am angry. I'm angry at my parents. I'm angry at my spouse. I'm angry at my boss. I'm actually, deeper than that, angry and sad about the state of my own life. And to chew on that and to taste that is to, is to come a little bit out of the shadows. Um, a golden projection would be something like, um, there's no way I am as creative and talented as my best friend. In fact, everything they touch turns to gold and, and therefore I'm actually jealous and sometimes I mock them behind their back. And, but every time I'm with them, I feel a kind of charge, a charge in my body and in my psyche lights up and I think something like that, if I'm, if I'm even conscious of it, there's no way I can be like them. That's an example of uh, the pot being stirred, the shadow getting stirred up and actually you have your own unique and creative contributions in the world that you're allowing someone else to live out. And as long as someone else gets to be the creative, talented, best writer, best business person, there's no way I could be like that, then I don't have to own my own stuff. And part of growing up in wild mind sense is beginning to court, and I think that's the right word, this West facet of wholeness. What are my creative capacities? How do I see the world? The gift of the West is imagination. And maybe you've heard me talk about the four windows of knowing, and now you can see how they're situated around these um, four facets of wholeness. The North is thinking. The South is feeling. The East is sensing. And the West is imagination. The most shut down in Western world. You have an imagination that is just beneath the surface that is wild and free and creative and unafraid of death in a way um, and loves risk and uncertainty and mystery that is just waiting to light your life up. So what would it look like to court this West facet of wholeness? So man, holy crap. I feel like I've been talking and talking quickly for like an hour. And all I was trying to do was give a drive-through version of this invitation, the invitation of wild mind. <laughs> uh, so uh, where do we go from here? I think in a, in a simple sense, if the map as I described it uh, rings true and something something in you says, yep, um, I could use a little help. I could use a little help around wholeness. In fact, I feel like I'm regularly hijacked by all these complexes, by all these immature expressions. Um, I know that's the way I felt when I f first started uh, hearing a bit about this. Then, I mean, I really do suggest get the book. It's really easy read. This is not... Um, it's not difficult stuff. And the great thing about the book is that there it's very practical in the sense of it will offer some usually nature-based suggestions for how, how to cultivate a little more north, how to cultivate south or east or west. It's very practical in that sense. And another thing that I think that is worth saying is that um, wholeness is not perfection. I didn't say all this at least I hope I didn't, to then um, 
give you a complicated and complex way of just being a good boy and a good girl. Oh, great. Not only am I lost existentially and I don't know what I think about God, now you're telling me um, there's this whole map out there and I'm totally immature and that's not, um, you know, that's not my intention. And I don't think it's the intention of this book. It's actually a way of saying that um, actually wholeness is around every corner. It's hidden in our complexes. And more than that, it's hidden in nature. Just to go on a walk and to stand by a tree begins to, uh, uh, or, or look at Rainier, <laughs> or a stand on the edge of Lake Michigan where I live, and wakens in, within us this facet of wholeness, this nurturing, generative parent. Um, to swim in a cold stream and to uh, sprint outside through a field. I mean, and just to feel alive in the body is the South is right there. It's right there. And um, in that sense, it's not like, it's not like I'm saying here's a complicated system. It's actually just a, a way of recognizing um, how, how, we're not so alone in the world that to be a human being is to fall more deeply in love with our own life and with the natural world in which we find ourselves that um, the seasons and the change of seasons is a great champion for our own psycho-spiritual growth the, the fact that um, something stirs in us this time of year in the fall is let's take that invitation uh, as seriously as we can. All right. What, how can I, is, does some creative, is some creative juice wanting to flow through me and to visit me? Um, that's in conversation with everything that's happening all around me as the leaves begin to fall and the season begins to change and the days become shorter. Um, in other words, I'm, I'm saying there's not Although you can definitely go on a wild mind program and learn all about this map. And sometimes even my retreats, I'll use this map and I'll introduce it over the course of a few days. Um, can definitely be a catalyst. But this, this isn't a complicated um, model. It's more simple. And, um, and these complexes, like the victim, the rebel, the... Um, the escapist and the addict and the loyal soldiers and the inner critic and um, there's a whole bunch of other the shadow whole bunch of other uh, subpersonalities and complexes that are at work are with us all the time you don't believe me wait till Thanksgiving and suddenly all of the enlightenment you thought you gained through the five million podcasts you learned suddenly goes right out the window the moment your parent says something annoying and you're right back into that maybe victim mode or a wounded child mode or a rebel where you're like, screw them. I'm just going to get drunk, you know, um, or escapist, an addict, whatever. Um, Thanksgiving is coming, meaning say hello to your complexes because we don't get rid of them. And I think that's one of the sobering things about Wild Mind is that this isn't a uh, the path of perfection. Wholeness is not the path of perfection. It's actually uh, 
what what is then the path if it's not a path of perfection it's um because it's it's the path of growing up and maturing and beginning to just like uh working out i suppose beginning to find more mature and whole ways of of being in relationship with these complex complexes when we're hijacked instead of the next time i just want to numb out on tv if i can begin to say wait a second what am i really longing for and is five five more hours of football on television really what i'm longing for or am i longing for even contact with god transcendence the divine union and what might bring me into contact with that um or next time i'm super um hijacked by the loyal soldier and it's a bunch of shoulds and i'm figuring out who do i need to please in the room is there a way for me to instead of just running with that for the next three weeks maybe the invitation is something like uh wait is there a nurturing generative adult that's needed right now is there is there a nurturing generative presence that doesn't have in mind who are the five people immediately in front of me that I think I need to please and is there a more mature um, slower more generative path that is already present just beneath the surface in other words the north and what would it look like to have a relationship with that and to check in with that um, and and so forth and so on so you, you see kind of the way I'm, I'm playing with the uh this map so i i think i want to just end with a few lines from the introduction to the book the great work this is kind of a reference i think to thomas berry um or joanna macy she calls it the great turning the great work of our time calls us to something greater than personal happiness and something more than mere refinements in politics, economy, religion, and education. At its most fundamental level, the great work necessitates both a revolution in our understanding of what it is to be human and a revival of our abilities to realize our potential and to transform our contemporary cultures. So in other words, this isn't just about um, kind of finding yourself and kind of sort of pop psychology, living a fulfilled life. It's time then, he goes on, to redraw our map of the human psyche. A revision germinated not in the notions of symptoms and illness, but in our innate wholeness and our foundational and organic uh, embedment in the natural world so this is that transition from just focusing on what is the problem to actually what is true about our innate wholeness and our foundational and our organic selves in a holistic and integral ecology or ecological framework he goes on towards these ends this book introduces a holistic and integral ecology of the human psyche that encompasses the best insights of Western psychologies, but also stretches far beyond them. 
extending our appreciation of the psyche's untapped potentials and its inner diversity, intricacy, and structural elegance. The nature-based map of the psyche highlights our positive, life-enhancing resources and perspectives and extols them as foundational to our humanity. In other words, everybody has them. The accent is not on our fragmented parts or wound stories. And just a quick caveat, we live in a wound-identified culture right now. Or how our psyche stall out in neurotic patterns. This is like um, Dr. Phil, once again, stalling out in our neurotic patterns. Or how we might merely recover from trauma, pathology, or addiction, all of which are helpful. Rather, the accent is on our wholeness and potential magnificence or how we can enhance our personal fulfillment and participation in our more than human world and how we can become fully human and visionary artisans of cultural renaissance. Yeah, so that's what's at stake. That's the invitation. Visionary artisans of cultural resonance. Renaissance, I'm sorry. Visionary artisans of cultural renaissance. That's what's needed on every level of society. And you and I can be a part of that. And some of that is going to require our own innate capacities of wholeness and cultivating a relationship with that. So we're not continually hijacked by all these fragmented and wounded parts of our psyche. So in brief, that's an introduction to wild mind. Man, that was harder than I thought. I actually tried this once before. And I couldn't do it. I don't know why. It's uh, I guess it's just a lot to sort of take on a single podcast. That's part of it. Um, and some of it is I'm just still so closely intertwined with this work. This is work I'm doing. So it's not like I'm some sort of expert. But with that said, I hope at least there is five minutes in here, hopefully much more, of something that you find or found and find helpful. Peace.